This week's episode is brought to you by the Communa Cruise. That's what, right, spend a couple of days on one of the Disney cruise ships. I forget which one right now, but you get to spend it with us and a bunch of other cadets. Email Weekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and book a stateroom, and we'll see you on the high seas. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And, you know, I just got to mention something because, and I really should have looked up the name before I did the banter, but again, we don't prepare this stuff. Um, someone literally emailed us the day that the part one of this episode came out and said, you guys should really do a segment on Cedar Point. And mm-hmm. I was like, Pfft. Good timing, sir, because guess what's coming out today? Guess what we did just for you? Um, yeah, and, uh, and I think we'll it was Greg. Greg, I think it, I think that's who you were, sir. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. But, Greg, I'm pretty sure and that I'm remembering. So this part oh. two is, is for you? We could send out two bills then. Yeah, that's if right. It Greg, if it's not Greg. Yeah, but what other podcast has the other host giggling during the sponsorship thing? I, I have no idea. Probably no none idea. because they're professional. <laughs> so we're not. So uh, never have been, never will. Nope. Why start now? It's almost over. <laughs> All right. I guess we should do part two of the Cedar Cedar Point history segment. It's time for the park history. So way back in episode two sixteen last week, uh, we covered the first sixty years or so of Cedar Point, which is located near Sandusky, Ohio. And, you know, we followed the park as it grew from a few bathhouses and a beer garden to this full-fledged amusement park with several hotels and a midway and, you know, a few roller coasters. And we left the park in 1931 as the manager of more than 30 years, uh, George Boakling, passed away. And he was an incredible influence on the park and shepherded it into the future. You know, and as we've covered in our history of amusement parks and our detailed look at the parks of Coney Island, a lot of parks didn't survive the Great Depression that started in 1929 and lasted throughout most of the 30s. Also, many parks were lost due to fires. Cedar Point was fortunate and only saw major problems from the devastating 1924 tornado that traveled along northern Ohio. And we know that Cedar Point survived the Great Depression, but there were many times when it was on the brink of closing or sold outright. So let's jump back into Dr. Squat, Dr. Scott's, not Dr. Squat, that's something different. Dr. Squat's Swan Boat <laughs> Time Machine to head back to Cedar Point in the 1930s. So Edward Smith took over after a Boakland's passing. And the 1930s were almost the beginning of the end for the park, and not a lot was done to improve or really add to it overall. Uh, But in 1934, the Leapfrog Railway was rebuilt and named uh, the High Frolics, and a tumblebug ride was added in 1935. And at some point in the late 1930s, the park was almost sold to the state of Ohio for $3 million. Yeah, and in 1938, the board of directors of the park remodeled the second floor of the Coliseum. 
Uh, it was built in 1906 and featured a ballroom on the second floor and sold beer and wine on the first floor. It was remodeled with an Art Deco feel and hosted many big bands during the 30s and the 40s. The Coliseum has been seen as one of the only reasons that Cedar Point survived the Great Depression. The Leap the Dips Scenic Railway was removed in 1935 and the High Frolics was removed in 1940. And the Coliseum building is still in the park today. And another part of the park that kind of helped Cedar Point survive was a little green wagon, uh, a pairing, uh, and a pairing knife, and a ton of potatoes. So those three things together <laughs> kind of helped in a way. Yep. So uh, Al uh, Berardi, he worked in the Penny Arcade, and he sold skee-ball tickets. And he worked more than 60 hours a week and made about $11 a week, which today is about $160. And in 1942, Al and a partner built their very first french fry stand. And Al's mother, Eurosa, joined him, and they were known as Mama Berardi's Homemade French Fries. And they sold the fries in the park until 1978 and became basically a park staple. Mm -hmm. And between 1941 and 1945, several attractions were, air, uh, were added. The Merry-Go-Round, the Octopus, still one of my favorite rides, the Ferris Wheel, the Moon Rocket, and the Flying Scooters. And in 1946, the Midway Carousel is added. And it's still Cedar Point's oldest existing ride. It was built in 1912 by Daniel Muller, and uh, in 1951, moving on a little bit, the Cyclone was removed, starting one of the few periods that Cedar Point would be without a roller coaster. I don't believe it for a second. How do they even Scary. survive? Scary. So. so in 1952, a 10-ride Land opened. And, you know, there were some other attractions added, like a Laugh in the Dark and a Loop Plane. Uh, but in 1956, a real estate group, which was led by George Rusi and uh, Emil Ligros, they purchased the entire peninsula. And their attempt, basically, was to close down the resort and build a housing development. Uh, and this prompted a public protest against the state, including the governor, uh, the legislators, and uh, uh, other officials as well. The state considered buying it and turning it into a park, but the city of Sandusky opposed it since they were, they were going to be losing more than $40,000 a year in tax revenue. And also, the lease on the island stipulated that it needed to be used for an amusement park until at least 1959. So in 1957, the Cedar Point Causeway opened at a cost of $600,000, and this offered a second road, so to speak, for visitors. And due to the fact that Cedar Point made a profit in 1958, Roos and Legros decided to concentrate on rebuilding the park and trying to create a Disneyland of the Midwest. And they would invest more than $1,200,000 to bring in new attractions and update buildings. And in 1959, the Breakers Hotel was restored while the Coliseum and the Grand Pavilion were repainted. A new bathhouse, a new power plant, and maintenance shop were built after the old ones were demolished. A wild mouse coaster was added in 1959, and it was the first coaster since the cyclone uh, was demolished. And then they also added a monorail. What did I say? Monorail! Is there a chance the track could bend? <laughs> okay, we won't go on. We could do the whole... We, could, we literally could. It's like it's a long song. It's a great song. And it's, uh, it's, it's important. Song, so. so in addition to the monorail, they also added the marina. Uh, the Million Dollar Midway had 57 rides and attractions that year. Uh, 1960 saw another $60 million of capital improvements. They added the Cadillac Cars, the Tiki Twirl, and the, uh, the Scrambler. The Midway was paved and a cafeteria was opened and over 400 rooms at the Breakers were modernized. Uh, 1961 brought another million dollars invested with the addition of the Rotor, the Skyride, and the Super Satellites. Wow. 
1963, the Cedar Point and Lake Erie Railroad opened, and there were six engines. The Maud L, which was a Baldwin 1902, the Albert, which was a Davenport from 1911, number 22 Vulcan from 1922, Porter Bell from 1878, and then there were also two vintage Porters. The Mill Race log flume was added, and it was the second of its kind and built by Aerodynamics, of course, after the one at Six Flags Over Texas. And the Wild Mouse coaster had been removed in 1962, so the park again was without a coaster until the Blue Streak opened in 1964. Now, the Blue Streak, which is still running today, was built by John Allen of the Philadelphia Toboggan Coaster. And Allen would build the racer at Kings Island, which would help relaunch America's love affair with roller coasters. Jungle Larry Safari Island opened in 1965, which is a great name. Um, yeah. Which at the time was a true island that housed animals on display. So kind of like a early Discovery Island in a way uh, mm -hmm. at Walt Disney World. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the animals had to be transported by a raft to the island, uh, which is kind of funny. But yeah. remember in episodes 213 and 214 where we talked about Freedom Land in uh, New York? Well, the San Francisco earthquake and the pirate ride uh, were open in 1966 at Cedar Point. Oh, that would have been so much fun. Okay, so the Cedar Creek Mine Ride opened in 1969, and this was an Arrow Mine Train coaster, and it's still in operation today. The Wildcat is added in 1970, and it's a Schwarzkopf portable steel coaster. Also opened again was the Bayern Curve, the Dodgem, the <clears throat> Schwabenchen. Bless you. Not sure what that is. Thank you. The Himalaya Monster, the Hofbrau. And the Kitty Land is expanded to 14 attractions. And also, Cedar Point celebrated 100 years. And jumping forward in 1976, the Corkscrew Roller Coaster opens. It was an arrow looping coaster that cost $1.75 million. In 1978, the dual track racing coaster, uh, Gemini, is added. And it's another arrow coaster that loops three times and spans the, uh, the entire midway. The Junior Gemini, uh, Intamin's Steel uh, Children's Coaster, is added in 1979. Uh, Demon Drop was added in 1983. Avalanche Run opened in 1985. And the San Francisco Earthquake Ride would be rethemed as the Bernstein Bear Country, which makes total sense to me. I mean, yeah, total Earthquake, sense. Like Bernstein Bears, whatever. It makes sense. So the Iron Dragon, which was an arrow suspended roller coaster, was added for $4 million in 1987. And then the Soak City Water Park opened in 1988. It was a $3.5 million five acre project with 10 slides that uh, had uh, two had heated water. There were a 60 foot speed slides. There were body slides and runaway inner tube slides. I'm not sure what that is. And the rollicking raft slides and they also built a bathhouse well because it's a bathhouse of course what else do you need and in 1989 the 200 foot tall hyper coaster magnum xl 200 opens and it's an aero coaster that cost eight million dollars reached 200 feet and was 70 went 70 miles per hour uh, 1991 brought the Mean Streak, which is the world's tallest and fastest wooden roller coaster at the time. In 1994, Raptor, a B&M in, uh, inverted coaster, opened as the tallest and the fastest at that time. In 1996, Mantis, uh, which is a, a stand-up steel coaster by B&M, was added for $12 million. And our beloved pirate ride from Freedomland is converted into an arcade. And of course, my personal favorite, mm -hmm. Hollow Weekends debuted in 1997. 
you know, we had to make sure that was added. So, um, another scary place was Camp Snoopy, right? No, just Ooh, kidding. Camp Spooky. <laughs> so, Camp Snoopy opened in 1999, which included eight attractions and the Woodstock Express, a junior roller coaster. And in 2000, Millennium Force debuts. It exceeds 300 feet in height and breaks 11 world records, including the tallest, fastest, and the steepest. The park also holds the world record with 68 rides, including 14 coasters. A Wicked Twister opens in 2002, and it's the world's tallest and fastest impulse coaster, which is one of those linear induction coasters. And it's also the world's first double twist vertical coaster. In 2003, Top Thrill Dragster opened. It's a rocket coaster that exceeds 400 feet, making it a strata coaster and hits speeds of 120 miles per hour. I'm so down for that. It's going to be great. <laughs> so Maverick, a steel coaster, was opened in 2007. Uh, it cost $21 million and had a delayed opening because the heart uh, line roll element was too intense for people. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2008, it saw the addition of Planet Snoopy with uh, ridges from the close of Guigla Lake Park. Uh, Shoot the Rapids, a flume ride with two drops, took riders through a rustic western environment with illegal moonshining. <laughs> Hooray, our favorite! <laughs> uh, and George's least favorite type of attraction oh. in the world opened in 2010, the 300-foot-tall Windseeker. I... Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. So, um, in 2011, Matt Wiemann was named as the CEO of Cedar Fair. And previously, he had served as the president of Disney Cruise Line and Disneyland Resort. So, yay. And in 2013, Gatekeeper, the world's longest wing coaster, was opened. It was part of a new entrance complex. And uh, Mantis was the stand-up coaster built by Bollinger Mablard in 1996, was converted to a floorless coaster for the 2015 season. It was renamed Rougarou, which I love saying Rougarou, and giving a, given a new paint scheme in addition to the new cars. And in 2016, we'll see the addition of Val Raven, a B&M dive coaster that will be the third of its kind in the U.S. and the tallest and the fastest in the world, and I am so excited. To get sounds to ride. pretty awesome. I love it. So, but you know, we'd love to know what you think about Cedar Point, especially the last forty-five years that we've talked about on this episode. <laughs> it's got such a long history. We'd love to know about your memories, your favorite ride, your favorite thing to do at Cedar Point. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line, because you know I was going to say that at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ha! It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, so there were three more Star Wars books, go figure, that were released before The Force Awakens actually premiered in December. And like the book Aftermath, which we covered before, there were clues to the upcoming film. So I stayed away from them until after I saw it. And the three books that we're talking about focus on the three heroes of the original trilogy and serve to bridge sort of between the first films, you know, A New Hope, Empire, and Jedi. And they're part of the Journey to the Force Awakens series. And overall, I enjoy them, but I'm not sure if they're for everyone. So the first step was trying to figure out what order, um, in what order I needed to read them. And after reading them, you really don't have to read them in any order. You can just pick them up and go because they're so separate. Um, they're all independent, they happen between the films, but, you know, I still had to read them as close to order as I could figure out. Okay, so the first one we're going to look up, or look at, is 
the journey to Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Smuggler's Run, a Han Solo adventure by Greg Rucka and Phil Noda. And I enjoyed the Han Solo book the most because out of the three, it sort of fit my view of what the Star Wars universe is supposed to be. The book starts shortly after the Battle of Yavin. In fact, Princess Leia is one of the last people on the moon, and she's waiting to convince Solo and Chewbacca to go on a rescue mission, even as the moon is being bombarded by the Imperial forces after regrouping from the loss of the Death Star. So Solo and Chewbacca race across the galaxy to the planet Sircon, because you got to have a weird name. They are trying to, they're trying to find a missing operative who's very important to the Rebels. And the operative is also being followed by an Imperial Destro Star Destroyer and an Imperial Security Bureau officer who is following orders and doesn't really know that the Death Star has been destroyed. So there's definitely a lot of confusion going on in the Empire. So I enjoyed the Han Solo book, but felt like it was more of a short story that was turned into a novella. Uh, definitely aimed at the tween and teen audience, but I think a lot of Star Wars fans are going to enjoy it if they're really looking for a good Han Solo and Chewbacca story itself. Lots of action, and the book has that Han Solo charm, and there's several battle scenes, and they're really well done. Okay, so the second book is Journey to Star Wars The Force Awakens, The Weapon of a Jedi, a Luke Skywalker adventure. And this one, again, takes after place after the Battle of Yavin, but a little bit past the Han Solo book. And basically, Luke has to recover some data at the request of Mon Mothma. And he gets saddled with a Y-Wing, and like, how boring. But then you realize he has to take R2-D2 and C-3PO, which is why the Y-Wing makes more sense. And he ends up sort of crash-landing on the planet Deveron, and is drawn to a mysterious temple. The Force is pulling him. So this is still a Luke who is completely unsure of the Force and what the Jedi actually are. And he hires a guy that takes him to the Forbidden Area, which has been named off-limits by the Empire, and there's a temple. And word is that the Jedi built the temple, so Luke is interested, so maybe he can learn something. And along the way, he runs into some trouble. He has to figure out how to use the lightsaber. And it sort of felt like one of those Marvel comics after the release of A New Hope where nobody really knew what was going on with the universe. And it wasn't as satisfying as the other two novels, but I still liked it, still enjoyed it, and I think people... We'll, we'll get a kick out of you know, seeing a Luke who doesn't know much about the Jedi. So the final book is Journey to Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Moving Target, A Princess Leia Adventure. And this book takes place after Empire Strikes Back and a few months before Return of the Jedi. And my guess is that they're getting closer to Jedi because they have to figure out a way of rescuing Han Solo as well. So the uh, interesting part about this story is seeing Princess Leia and how she acts and how she does certain things which we've never really seen her do before. And it felt a little out of place to me because we've never seen anything that focused on Leia as being sort of like an action hero instead of just using her diplomatic skills. We just haven't seen as much of that. Um, it's, uh, it's a good book because they tell you an interesting story where she is forced to go out on a mission and she knows and we know that the mission is not supposed to succeed. And a lot of people are potentially going to die, but they have to do this to get Jedi or get to Return of the Jedi. Uh, like I said, it's still a Leia that we're not used to seeing. She's a little bit different. This is a Leia that climbs mountains, sort of, and engages in other shootouts and firefights. And it's just something that I just wasn't used to or prepared for. Still, I enjoyed it. Really liked it. Liked it more than the Luke book, but not as much as the Han Solo book. Um, I like them all. think these are books that Star Wars fans are going to enjoy, get a kick out of them, but they're not going to put a lot of um, 
faith in the book, so to speak. It's not really the right word. But uh, as you get into them, they're going to bridge. The stories bridge between the films or the movies themselves. So it helps tie in and shows you how they went from Star Wars to Empire to a new uh, to Return of the Jedi. And in one of the books, I couldn't figure out what the Journey to the Force Awakens clue was. So I'm going to have to look that up a little bit. But again, these are the Journey to the Force Awakens books for Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and Princess Leia. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. Uh, this week's window is in Hong Kong Disneyland, and it reads, The Original Engineers, New Structures and Old Lifts, Mike McCullough and Dave Dow. Now, Mike is the Vice President of Environmental Design for Engineering for Imagineering. And Dave Dow was the manager of electrical engineering for Imagineering from 1987 until 1998. Then he became the director of facility engineering for four years before becoming director of Imagineering until, uh, I'm sorry, 2002. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. So this one is less five-legged goat, more five-legged ghost in a way. Whoa, you didn't tell me this was going to be scary. I know. I'm sorry, George. I'm sorry. But it has to do with Cedar Point, so time to back in. So park employees have passed down the story of a haunted Cedar Point carousel for generations now. Uh, And the story goes that one of the horses for the park's carousel was handcrafted by a man in Michigan. Now, legend has it that his wife was especially fond of this horse and was so protective of it that she didn't want anyone to photograph it. That's how much she loved it. Um... (laughs) So, the legend states that the man caught his wife in with another man. You know, I'm not going to say doing what, but then afterward, he was so angry, he took care of them both. Are you getting what I'm putting down here? Okay, we'll, we'll just move on. So, he apparently carved their bones into the horse that she loves so much. I don't know what that means or what that entails. I, I don't want to know, but it sounds crazy. Um, So this is unverified, obviously, but a lot of park employees have claimed over the years to have been spooked by the carousel after dark. Some even Mm. claim to have seen the ghost of the woman riding the carousel. Um, The original carousel has moved on to another park, but the original horse that's haunted is said to still be in storage at the park. So you ever go walking past the Frontier Town Museum and get scared? It might just be the ghost of Cedar Point, you know, wondering where the carousel went. So now I can mark that off my list. I'm not going <laughs> to visit. Places George's will never go. <laughs> the Frontier Town Museum in uh, the dark. Sorry for ruining that for you, George. No, I really. Yeah. I mean, ghosts kind of like the daytime too, but maybe you'll just never notice it because there's people all over the place. <clears throat> yeah, maybe not. Or what if some of the people are the ghosts oh, walking around? Oh, plot twist. Ooh. This episode brought to you by M. Night Shyamalama Boogie. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> this leads us to... <laughs> I was going to say something about, you know, something that's not scary is our year of a million or so limited time cadets. Prize. No, it is scary. Georgia's segways. Yeah, they, they're getting worse for that, some reason. That's, that was the one. Yeah. So uh, as a reminder to join the uh, celebration, as we'll call it, you have to email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday, and we will add you to our humongous list of cadets that want to be a prize winner and we're drawing for the rest of the week so yay so this week we've got a communicore weekly prize pack actually it's a fairy godmother travel oh this week is fire oh that's right that's right the amazing fairy godmother travel of course supplying this one so who is our winter our winter 
Oh, because the winter is coming. Wow, yeah. Our winner this week is Crystal T from Tallahassee, Florida. Ooh. Hooray, Crystal T. Fantastic. So just a reminder, you can email communicoreweekly at gmail.com to be part of this giveaway. And Crystal, send us a photo of yourself for the prize pack. Yeah, we'd We'd love love to see what you got because it's a surprise to us also. It always is. So, Okay, well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Yeah, however you get the show. If you listen on iTunes, maybe throw us a rating or a comment or even on YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And email us again at communicoreweekly at gmail.com, gmail.com to enter the contest or say hey or what's going on or anything. <laughs> you can also like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Periscope. I'm at Imagineerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. Visit communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com to pick up some incredible Communicore Weekly t-shirts. And there's still time to get your official cadet membership card and stickers. Uh, you can send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And visit patreon.com slash Weekly to find out how you can help support the greatest online show. And for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Ghost Baby.